understanding of those things. A very formative time in my life, though, was in between my junior and my senior year. Um, I had to spend that entire um, summer stuck in a car with Trenton. Uh, we were delivering a, uh, a product to um, all the churches in Rutherford County, and so we spent hundreds of hours stuck in that white Grand Marquis. It was miserable. Um, and Trevor had just come back from Romania. He was fired up and um, had all sorts of questions. And I didn't have a ton of answers at the beginning of that summer. I had not still a ton of answers at the end of the summer, but more than I began with. Um, he basically just kind of asked all manner of questions of, hey, why do you think this? Why do you think the, um, you know, the Bible says about this? Why do you, why do you believe that? Um, and I feel blessed that I had a very challenging, rigorous, um, you know, like Greek master just like hammering <laughs> stuff um, for a summer, asking me all questions. So there's the, I'm not sure about that, was not a good enough answer. Um, and he let me know that. And so I spent the whole summer kind of going, you know, just kind of thinking through and I guess kind of working out the, the nuances of, of our faith. Uh, I also read a book uh, called The Reason for God. It's by Timothy Keller. Uh, and that, that book is really just kind of talking about how um, our faith is just a very reasonable one. It's a rational um, one. It's easy to, uh, not, not always easy to understand, but it is, um, it is reasonable at its core. And so that summer was really profound for me because I had an extremely intellectual um, kind of understanding of, of the gospel and that. Um, our faith can be put under the microscope. It can, it can kind of stand um, the test of intense scrutiny, and it, and it held up just fine. And for a junior going to senior year, that was a really big deal to me, um, that, it was, that it was sound. So that happened that summer. And then also in that summer, as equally formative, um, I went through a small um, men's Bible study uh, with a, a teacher at my youth group back at Northside. Um, and we went through a book called He Chose the Nails by Max Aquino. And um, if you guys know Max Aquino, love Max Aquino, but he's not necessarily like the deepest, you know, like most profound theological um, source or anything. But that book, he put it so, so beautifully and profound and just the, the intentionality and the, the really direct, um, I, guess he, I guess that summer really kind of connected heart and head um, for me in that uh, was understanding just really how how strong our faith was and then how real and intimate our faith was just with each other's nails. That, the, the whole point of that book was each other's nails for you. Um, and then really kind of going through the, the, the picture of the cross and what, um, what God has done on our behalf. So that summer was, was a big one for me. And after that summer, when I kind of look at my testimony, I look at my life and kind of what um, happened up till then and, and after that, that was definitely a distinct time in my life where I felt like there was a turning um, where I, there's more of an intentionality after that year where I started making decisions, um, thinking, what does God want me to do here? What does it, what does it look like to follow Jesus in, in this way? And so there's definitely some sort of um, significant milestone in terms of discipleship that happened that year. Fast forward another couple of years, I'm at Union University, um, and uh, Union was just was wildly um, formative for me. 
each each year I can look at um, each year of, of college and I can look at um, different individuals who just taught me um, so much for God. He's so gracious um, to put me uh, with a certain life group leader and then, he's, and then he put me into um, a, a room by accident basically where I got kind of lumped together with much better. Um, a, a very random housing debacle landed me with um, three other guys, one of which just profoundly changed my life. Um, I'll say three guys by name, real quick. Um, one, Hunter Bragg, my freshman year, he essentially um, was just extremely like gospel obsessed. He literally talked about the gospel all the time. We, um, we had this, uh, we did like a little discipleship thing, one with me and then one with me and two other guys, um, and we kind of went through uh, the story arc of the gospel of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and just kind of like, Talk through that in terms of story, and we also talk about in terms of a system of God, man, sin, and Christ's response, um, and just reeling me on that stuff. And just really, like, really, I mean, those things, whenever I was finding out, um, you know, components of the gospel and things that are like forged to our faith, I hear Hunter hearing, What is God like? He is holy and just, He's gracious and merciful, and God and stuff that's love. And then how that, you know, how that plays out. Um, so that, that was a really big year. Tim Levey, which I've talked about before, he's come here and he's preached before. He's doing ministry out in Utah right now um, to the Mormons. He uh, taught me how to pray. He spent uh, a lot of time in this chapel, and I just I can hear him praying right now. And he, he prayed perfectly and specifically. And um, the, <laughs> the devotion to, to go to God every time, every time.
go up to our house sometime and I'll, I'll tell it to you again and we'll laugh. And Mary will say stuff and I'll be like, what's that? But it kind of was. Also, uh, right after we got married, I broke my leg. A lot of you guys um, were at the church. A lot of you guys actually were not at the church when that happened. But uh, I broke my leg and it was a pretty profound break. Um, and that was at a, at a key time um, where I felt like um, I was starting to really kind of just get really distracted in my, in my loves and my priorities and feel like soccer was just becoming like this idol in my life. Um, and I talked to Mary about it a week before it happened. I said, I think God's going to break my leg or something because I'm, like, this is getting out of control. And a week later, I broke my leg. And I'm laying on the on the field at the soccer field. And I was singing for a long time. Um, and I, I remember uh, feeling like God cared for me. And then he, <laughs> and breaking me felt like a kindness and a grace. Because um, I felt like, who cares enough to discipline a child? And um, I remember that um, I was in the hospital for like way too long because there's complications. Um, and that was a really dark time, but I felt like the nearness of God's presence there and that. Um, and you know, through, through a little bit of uh, trial, I felt like God um, demonstrated to uh, a son that he cared enough um, to break a little lamb's leg um, so that the shepherd could bring him back. And now you guys know my children that they are a picture of God's grace and mercy to me. And they remind their dad we are inadequate to be things on our own and that we must constantly um, be going to him for grace and mercy. So those are kind of the highlights of my life <laughs> up to this point, um, demonstrating that God has been faithful. He's been faithful to me, and I feel like I've seen enough to be able to tell anyone that we will be faithful. I'm going to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, the qualifications for being uh, an, an overseer. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. So we're here tonight. The desire, if you look at this passage carefully, the desire to be an overseer um, is a good one. And it's not because it's the, the pride or the ambitiousness or the reaching out to, to grasp some kind of position or authority that comes uh, from the, the person who's being ordained. Uh, but Paul says he desires a noble work. He talks about the actual, the actual work, that the task itself is noble because it involves the, the nurture of God's people, caring for God's people. And that's something that those of you at Blackman uh, already know with Weston. This is what he does week in and week out as he's leading you in worship. Uh, it's not just leading songs, but wanting to actually nurture and care for the congregation and turning their hearts to the gospel. And so what's interesting about this list, Weston, is that the charge, all of these things that are said about what the overseer should be like, 
Basically, almost every Christian is called to these things in some form or function. They're not really that unique, but the, one of the main differences here is that we're setting someone apart who's going to be really even more responsible for modeling the truth. And, and what we're saying, what you're saying as a congregation is you're saying the whole congregation would do well to imitate this kind of person, this kind of, of leader. You look at the, the requirements. The first one is very general. Uh, that his public reputation must be solid. So the first thing it says, uh, it's kind of the most general one. In fact, you might say that the rest of them fit under this, but you have to be above reproach. That's verse two. And then in verse seven, it says you have to have a good reputation among outsiders as well. So above reproach, both inside the church and outside the church, so that there's a good testimony, a good reputation. Uh, that you're, What that means is your life cannot detract from the proclamation from the gospel. And unfortunately, we've seen plenty of cases where there is someone who has been called out, set apart, and ordained for gospel ministry, but later in life, that above reproach becomes compromised. And sometimes, out of a person's own volition, they'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to move forward in service uh, as an ordained pastor, or because a church asks that that, that, that be taken back. So this is serious that, that the Apostle Paul says that reputation matters both for insiders and for outsiders. Uh, but then you can see the, the specifics of what that means. Fidelity in marriage and family. That's verses 2 uh, where it talks about the husband of one wife. And verses, uh, in verse 7 it talks about, uh, um, or uh, verse uh, 4 and 5 where it talks about that he must manage his own household competently, have children under control, and he's got to be able to, to manage his own affairs. And then following from that, you see all of these other qualifications. Um, several of them have to do with what we might say is self-mastery, self-discipline. I mean, think it, it says self-control, sensible, respectable, not excessive in drinking. All of this is, these are inward self-control kinds of things. When I think of being self-controlled, there's a lot of different areas of application for you in that. And we, we all have to kind of know our own tendencies and our own struggles as to know how best to, uh, um, uh, to uh, um, uh, show this, this discipline that, that we have. But when I think of sensible and I think of respectable, that means in your conversations, that means in discussions, that means in arguments, means online. Uh, there's a, a lack of a lot of sensibility and respectability in a lot of our, our culture. And what the church is saying, and one of the things that makes for a, a qualified uh, uh, um, overseer is that you have a, a, a sense of self-discipline in these areas. And then you've got hospitality, too. Um, and I think that's an important one because I, evangelism, mission, living on mission, these are Generally, it's harder and harder in our day to do this unless we have hospitable homes and we, unless we have uh, an openness to others. And I think I, I like something that John Self says here. He says self-mastery makes self-giving possible. So apart from the self-discipline, the ability to be able to give of yourself won't, won't be possible. And then, of course, there's the teaching ability, able to teach. And the whole point of that is that the word of God is central. And you've demonstrated that you have an ability to teach, that you have a calling to teach, that you love to, to teach and open and preach God's word. And then there's also something here about the, the temperament that an overseer is supposed to have. Not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome. You know, this is where gentleness is one of the, uh, Jesus speaks of this as one of the Beatitudes, it's also one of the, the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so there's a, an exemplary nature in you being this kind of person who's not quarrelsome, not going fight to fight, looking for, uh, for arguments, but that you are, uh, uh, that you genuinely care for the people that have been entrusted to you. Then there's the attitude toward money. And you see, there's really a trifecta of sins that derail overseers. Money, sex, and power. In any of those three, I would give point to specific examples like the name names. I'm not going to do that though because I'm going to self-pass it on my mouth right now. But in the past 10 years, I could name names of well-known, gifted, talented pastors who have fallen because of one of those three things. So the attitude toward, toward money and possessions. And then finally, the qualification is of spiritual maturity. And it's interesting that Paul says he shouldn't be a young convert because he might become conceited. So the danger for the young convert is not that they wouldn't know what they're doing, but that they might be proud of the position of authority that they've already been given, which Paul, in other words, is saying humility is a qualification. And humility may take years and, and, and a lot of time to see, but that kind of humility is important uh, as you are going to be an overseer. So Weston, I love you. I'm charging you in front of this uh, congregation of believers to live up to these qualifications. Let these be a, the example of your life so that other people see Jesus in you for the rest of your life. Thanks, Dad, for letting me go out for traffic. I owe you one, right? Well said, brother. All right, Wes, I've got just a couple of uh, uh, verses that I want to uh, charge you with. And the first one is uh, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Paul writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, Wes, when you think about your pastoral ministry, when you think about uh, being a worship pastor, you're a black man, uh, in some cases a teaching pastor, you're doing community groups and other Bible study. Don't ever forget that you're an ambassador for Christ, whether it's here on the BBC campus or out in the marketplace. As a business, successful businessman, talented businessman, you are a marketplace pastor as well. Um, and remember, you're an ambassador. You're, you, you and Mary are both ambassadors for Christ. And I would also remind you that Paul said we. You're not alone. You've got great partner, Mary. She is right there with you. Great ministry partner. You guys are ambassadors together. All right. Second passage is Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to look at verse 19 and 20. Paul writes, Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So this kind of goes back to the humility factor that Trevor was talking about. You've got the leading missionary, all-time greatest missionary, of the gospel, Paul is saying to the church 
at Ephesus, pray for me. Um, pray that I will have boldness. I think Paul's pretty bold. <laughs> the guy was shipwrecked, I don't know, like three times. He's, you know, beaten, driven out of cities. But yet he still wants to be bold for the gospel. And my charge to you is pray for boldness. Ask people to pray for you for boldness. Remember to be that ambassador. And Paul, he, he comes back to the ambassador. He says, I'm an ambassador in chains. So be an ambassador. You're an ambassador of the most high God. But there's going to be persecution. You've already faced some of this in the business world for, for being bold and, and standing firm in the faith. But continue to be bold. In church, pray for your pastors. Pray for Weston. Pray for Brother Ken. Pray for Brother Kevin. They need boldness. They need to be bold ambassadors and to speak the gospel and to make clear the gospel. That's what Paul reminds as he's closing out his letter to the Ephesians. He's, he's asking for this because even though he's in prison when he's writing this, he still wants to be bold in proclaiming God's word. And Weston, may this church always pray for you guys and lift you up and encourage you to be bold, whether it's here on campus or out in Riversboro or across the world, wherever God sends you, be bold. Be that ambassador that God has called you to be. West and I am blessed to be able to speak to you today. Some words of challenge and preparation and encouragement, I hope. I have been blessed to serve with you. I've learned things from you. And by years, you're far my junior, but you have taught me, and I appreciate it. I've been encouraged by your passion for the gospel of Jesus. And your influence on our church has been significant and positive through your thoughtful order of service that touches us every single week, and it teaches um, your leadership and teaching in community groups and Sunday school and the pulpit. Um, the example that you and Mary set for, for my girls. Um, so thank you. And we love you guys. Um, you're hearing today from, from your brothers and you're going to hear from your father. These are calls for courage, boldness, integrity, work, perseverance, commitment to the truth of the gospel. You've heard their voices many times before. But don't take them for granted. Listen well. Um, the faithfulness and wisdom that you're hearing from these men is a great gift to you. I know that you know that, but but don't don't take that for granted. Now, as you as you approach this calling, you're a leader in your business already, and you're you're pursuing leadership in the church and more leadership. And there are similarities in the two, but they're not the same. And I think everybody that's spoken and will speak has, has been bivocational. And, and we, we live in the marketplace and we live in the church. And, and we're tempted to get the two confused sometimes. There are similarities, but it's not the same. And as the gospel itself is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling stone to Jews, Jesus himself turns the world's idea of power and authority and leadership on its head. I'm going to read a quick passage uh, from Matthew. And this will be a familiar one. 
Then the mother of Zebedee's, this is the word of the Lord, then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. And she knelt down to ask, ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We're able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. So just as Trevor was saying a moment ago that that uh, to lead in the church and the qualifications for an elder are really no, they're not unique for what for what it means to be a believer and a follower of Jesus. They're just amplified, and there's a bit more scrutiny that's placed on us when we're we're in that role. And so I just have a few thoughts that I wanted to take, take out of these and share them with you. And I would say, um, these aren't in any particular order, so I'll just walk through. But when, not if, conflict comes, remember that your adversary is almost never people, actually. It's the power of sin, of Satan, working in or through someone. And sometimes that someone might be you. Be ready to repent. To follow Christ is to recognize our sinfulness and be ever ready to repent. To lead others in Christ is to be ready to demonstrate this. This isn't easy, and it requires the crushing of pride. Worldly wisdom says, don't let them see your weakness. Don't admit you were wrong. Jesus says, confess your sins one to another. You told us that you have a relationship with Jeremy specifically, that you're able and I am so thankful for that. That is that's so valuable. Don't let that go. Continue that. Um, but the problem isn't always going to be you. Sometimes the problem isn't you. And then you have to be ready to forgive as you have been forgiven. And this is hard. But Jesus requires it. He's Lord. He's also given us an example of that. I'll say this. Remember, we've talked about David recently. Remember that the Lord sees your heart. And some people hear this and they think, ah, oh, what a comfort. Because I only have the best of intentions. So whew, I'm glad God's looking at my heart. But be careful. Because you know, and I know, that isn't always the good. That isn't always good. We need to challenge this. We need to, we need to recognize this is not only a comfort, but it's a warning. Because even when we're doing things that look good on the outside, God sees our hearts. And our hearts aren't always right. He knows. I will tell you that a pastor must have tough skin and a tender heart. And not the other way around. You have to be slow to take offense. And you have to be quick to listen. To forgive and to comfort. The listening, the forgiving, and the comforting may need to be given to someone who has hurt you. That's okay. You won't be doing anything more than what Jesus has already done for you. 
Jesus is the head of the church. You may be the hardest working person that you see in your church. But if you start believing that you're entitled to something besides humbly serving and the people serving Jesus and the people that he died to save, then you're going you're to be off track. From Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow him. Jesus didn't say, take up your scepter of authority and follow him. He said, your cross. It's a hard road, but it's the road to Jesus. It's the road that we got to be on. My challenge to you is to lead well by following well. I love you. I'm proud of you. The Lord has blessed me to be able to work alongside you, uh, both in the business world and the ministry world. And I'm a very, very blessed man. Um, in regards to Western Salvation, uh, I just want you to know that his mother and I and uh, his siblings uh, were all teaming up on him. And uh, his mother and I were a little bit concerned that uh, maybe he didn't fully understand it uh, as much as a four-year-old can understand it. So we were kind of putting the brakes on there a little bit. And I'll never forget the time when Weston came to us and said, I wish somebody around here would let me get saved. <clears throat> and I think about how much a four-year-old can understand the gospel truly understand the gospel. And then I think about how much or how little a 60-year-old man can understand the gospel. I don't. It makes no sense. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He knew. He knew. Words from Proverbs to you, Weston. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright. He is a shield for those who live with integrity so that he may guard the paths of justice and protect the way of his faithful followers. There are certain role models that I've been thinking about, Weston, that I would encourage you in your ministry to be like. I think about Moses, so patient with the people, so long-suffering, suffered right alongside with them through the desert that he didn't want to be in, that he shouldn't have been in, but he was, the, he, was their, he was their shepherd. And he knew what it was like to shepherd a flock in the wilderness for 40 years. He did that with his own flock, and then God gave him a flock of 2 million of complaining, 
unhappy, disgruntled, rebellious people. But Moses was willing to die for the people. And time and time again, he stood in the gap and he said, Lord, don't kill them. Kill me instead. And still yet in the end, Moses was bitter in his spirit and he disobeyed the Lord. So maybe Moses is not the role model. Maybe, maybe it's David. What a fighter. So brave, so bold, like what Justin, what Justin says, so bold for the Lord. Think of him as a teenage young man, maybe just a little bit older than Timothy back there, standing up and defending the honor of God on the field of battle. What a fighter. So loved for his men, so willing to die for his people. And yet near the end, he was chased by the people. A lot of that was because of his own sin. So maybe, maybe not David either. Maybe Solomon. We've been in the Proverbs. Love those verses I just read to you, Weston. At the beginning, so humble for the people. So good for the people. Brought prosperity to the people in a way that had never been seen. Hadn't been seen before. Hadn't been seen since. Brought peace to the people. Hadn't been ever a peace like that before. Hadn't ever been a peace like that. And yet in the end, the leader led the people astray. So maybe not Solomon either. And then I think about the words of Jesus when he was describing himself and he said, there's one greater than Solomon here. If you don't understand the context, those might sound like bold words, but those were true words. Because there was one greater than Solomon here. So I think you better be like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Because he chose the nails.